My name is Christina, and this is the Note History Podcast. I'm a college student, and on this show, I talk about things that have sparked my interest as a history major. We're currently discussing two topics, American environmental history, and the subject of today's episode, African American history. To recap, this series began immediately following the end of the Civil War. The Union, made up of mostly northern states, won the Civil War against the Southern Confederacy. The reconstruction of the country entailed a military presence in the former Confederate states. However, there was a constant threat of violence against Black Americans. The 30-year period following the end of the Civil War saw the most lynchings in American history. Programs like the Federal Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to help the newly freed in many aspects of life, including obtaining employment, negotiating contracts, as well as providing land to the formerly enslaved so that they could have assistance acclimating into society. However, the program was never properly funded for the enormous responsibilities that it had. Black Americans were kept in a position that was as close to still being enslaved as possible. That was done through the implementation of multiple legislative decisions and compromises that kept black people in a subordinate position. An example is the failure of the Freedmen's Bureau as well as the legislation in the Missouri Compromise. So that's where we are picking up today. I'm going to be talking about things like the Missouri Compromise and other legislation and I'm going to end the episode talking about things that the African American community was able to accomplish even though they had so much working against them. All right, let's get into it. The Missouri Compromise, March 3rd, 1820, stopped the Northern state's attempt to forever prohibit slavery's expansion by admitting the former Confederate slave state of Missouri as a slave state into the Union, along with the free state of Maine. See, the idea was that if we could admit a formerly slave state as a free state, then we can, you know, bring along another state that still wants to have the institution of slavery. The Missouri Compromise also prohibited slavery in the Louisiana Territory. The Louisiana Territory was purchased in April of 1803 for $15 million. At that time, the United States nearly doubled in size, and the Louisiana Purchase included 827,000 square miles. It was a formerly French-held land, and it meant a lot of things for the new country of the United States. It meant westward expansion. However, it was obtained through a, quote, fierce tussle over colonial power in the 18th century. The Library of Congress has a wonderful research guide for both the Missouri Compromise as well as the Louisiana Purchase. I will be linking both in the show notes. In 1854, the Missouri Compromise was repealed, which means that it was revoked, annulled, or undone by the Kansas-Nebraska Act. The Kansas-Nebraska Act was signed into law in 1854 by the 14th President of the United States, Franklin Pierce. 
According to HistoryNebraska.gov, the incentive for organizing the territory was due to the need for a transcontinental railroad. The Missouri Compromise created problems because it prohibited slavery in the area where Nebraska would be. As usual, compromises were made, and the controversy surrounding the Kansas-Nebraska Act would later play an important role in kickstarting the eventual Civil War. For the next section, I'm going to be referencing the book the African American Odyssey, Volume 2, Chapters 16 and 17. Chapter 16 covers the years 1895 to 1925 and discusses the Tuskegee Institute where Black students learned about agriculture and vocational subjects and where the Tuskegee Experiments, Tuskegee Study, or per the CDC, the quote, Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. End quote. The study took place from the years 1932 to 1972, and for those of you that are not quick with math, that's 40 years. 600 African American men were studied, and 128 participants ended up dying. As I've said before, there are intense shifts and forces creating a push and pull in the lives of the formerly enslaved African Americans and would also impact future generations. At the turn of the century, Black people's future within the United States was seen very differently by black and white people. There was an overwhelming sense that black people were inferior and that sentiment was so ingrained that the overall opinion is that African Americans were only capable of things like manual labor, which means that they should only be entitled to basic legal rights, if any. But Black people refused to accept inferiority. There were a lot of African-American leaders that fought for the civil rights of black people. And there was a number of different approaches. Generally speaking, there was the peaceful legislative route. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there was a direct approach. An example of both sides, and again, this doesn't mean that these are the only people, opinions, or approaches. However, I'm going to be talking about two people that were discussed in my class. The first is W.E.B. Dubois, and he was the Niagara Movement founder, as well as a founder of the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. He was more in favor of the direct approach. On the other side was Booker T. Washington of the Tuskegee Institute, and he cautioned against the, quote, vigorous pursuit of civil rights, political power, and said that agricultural and industrial training would generate prosperity and self-sufficiency. He was more in favor of the peaceful legislative approach. The Talented Tenth, which was a term coined by W.E.B. Dubois, described the educated Black elite during the late 19th and early 20th century. He believed that those with money and means needed to help those that were suffering. They were expected to assume responsibility for leadership and advancement of the other 90% of their race. In 1917, the U.S. entered World War I, and Black men 
responded and served in segregated barracks. Desegregation in the military didn't happen until July 26, 1948, when President Harry Truman issued Executive Order 9981, which banned segregation in the armed forces. In both world wars, black soldiers served in segregated barracks, and you guessed it, their conditions were far from as nice as their white counterparts. According to archives.gov, back home, African Americans challenged legislation, like in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson. According to landmarkcases.org, in a 7-1 decision, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Ferguson. The majority rejected Plessy's 13th and 14th Amendment arguments and instead endorsed the doctrine of, quote, separate but equal. The dissent written by Justice John Marshall Harlan disagreed, arguing that segregation laws make society believe that races are not equal. Justice Henry Brown wrote the majority opinion, which rejected Plessy's argument that the Louisiana law conflicted with the 13th Amendment. The court then considered whether the law conflicted with the 14th Amendment, and they identified the purpose of that amendment as, quote, enforcing the absolute equality of the two races before the law. End quote. Legislative victories and legislation in general would pave the way for future decisions. An example is in 1950, the NAACP challenged the separate but equal doctrine. Another example is the case of Brown v. Board of Education, and that was a case that was heard in 1954. According to landmarkcases.org, in a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of of the Browns. The court found that the practice of segregation in public schools was unconstitutional and refused to apply its decision in Plessy v. Ferguson to, quote, the field of public education. I'm going to be linking information for both cases. This is obviously a very general overview, and I'm not going into the specifics of what led up to these cases making it to the Supreme Court, and I urge everybody to look into them further. The 1920s in the United States was a time of a variety of racism. There was the sophisticated racism, which the KKK or Ku Klux Klan falls under. There was scientific racism that said that the United States was under siege by European and black migrants who were inferior to the quote great race. And racist claims of white scholars were accepted and passed as legitimate. And that helped to strengthen white supremacy. The variety of racism had real-world consequences, and in 1921 and 1924, Congress restricted immigration from South and Eastern Europe, Latin America, the Caribbean, and Asia. Now, this is the part of the episode that I want to talk about what is called the Harlem Renaissance and the flowering of creativity. Even though African Americans faced astronomical challenges to their basic human rights, There was times and places where their creativity, insightfulness, thoughtfulness, and abilities did and could shine through. 
According to memory.loc.gov, in the literature and visual arts, the Harlem Renaissance, insofar as it can be defined, is described principally by a series of novels, books of poetry, paintings, and sculpture. The Harlem Renaissance was a time that African-American people flourished within the creative arts. The works I chose reflect the reality that Black people were forced to face and show how artists conveyed that reality through their creativity. The first picture I chose depicts nine young Black men that were convicted of raping two white females. It is the Scottsboro Limited, and it was inscribed for Langston Hughes, November 1931. The youngest of the males was just 14. I chose this piece because it depicts something that occurred in the years after slavery was abolished. As a tactic to scare black people into submission, weak or false accusations were made against black men and boys, saying that they were serial assaulters of white women and they deserved to be treated as criminals and killed. The Jim Crow laws in the South are the legal re-enslavement of black people and cases just as the one that's depicted in this piece were rampant and pretty common. The second piece that I chose to discuss is a poem called The Ballad of Booker T and it is a poem. One of the earliest beliefs that black people were inferior to whites led to the establishment and implementation of slavery for nearly 250 years. Uh, the poem by Langston Hughes discusses discusses Booker T. Washington's approach, and even though he didn't agree with his approach, I think he was able to speak about it beautifully. Old Booker T. was a practical man. He said, till the soil, learn from the land. Let down your buckets where you are. In your own backyard, there could be a star. Train your heart and your hand to help yourself and your fellow man. Thus, Booker T. built a school, book learning there, and the workman's tool. I hope I didn't butcher that too badly. The last piece I chose is a photo of Marian Anderson. It is from when she received the Springer Medal from Eleanor Roosevelt. Like many African-American artists, Marian Anderson, born in Philadelphia in 1902, achieved fame in Europe before the doors of opportunity were opened in the United States. In 1939, when the Daughters of the American Revolution refused to allow Anderson to perform at the Constitution Hall in Washington, D.C., First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt resigned her DAR membership and Secretary of the Interior Harold Ickix offered Anderson the use of the Lincoln Memorial on Easter Sunday. There were more than 75,000 people in attendance at the event. Later in the year, when the NAACP awarded her the Springham Medal, that concert and other assaults against unjust treatment of African-American performers would ultimately lead to the lowering of barriers within the arts. That is where we are stopping today's episode. Be sure to tune in for the next episode that's related to American environmental history. I really appreciate you. I hope everyone has a good rest of your day and I will see you next time. Bye.